to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Cheryl McGee Wallace, Special Advisor of iRelaunch, and your host for today. A well-crafted resume is an applicant's calling card. Unless you've held informational interviews with insiders at your target organizations, your resume is a critical first impression, which will be judged probably at a glance. Today, we're discussing resumes with Kendall Brown, founder of Ascension Careers. Kendall is also one of iRelaunch's many experienced career coaches. Hi, Kendall. Welcome to 321 iRelaunch. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you and your listeners about resumes and perhaps address some of the questions they have. Great. Before we begin, can you briefly tell us a little bit about your background and experience as a career coach? I started my coaching career over seven years ago, working with MBA students at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. I eventually transitioned to working with alumni of the business school, and that proved to be a really fun challenge. There's a large degree of sameness to students. They're looking for similar jobs, they have similar work histories, and they're in similar life stages, whereas alums represent such a broad spectrum of career stages, work histories, and professional goals. It was with this population that I feel I really built my coaching chops. I also feel there's a lot of overlap between alums and relaunchers. Each relauncher has a unique reason for leaving the workforce and then a specific personal story for wanting to re-enter it. So my time coaching alumni has prepared me very well for working with relaunchers. That's great. Thanks for that. So let's dig right in. I recently read an article about resumes that look like professionally designed marketing material with photographs and various fonts for each section. What are the basics of a resume format? Okay, so at its most basic, a resume will include an applicant's name and contact info. Additionally, it's one to two pages that document an applicant's career history, educational background, and other pertinent information that details her professional development. Typically, this is done in a bulleted format. A professionally designed resume guarantees that the resume is aesthetically pleasing and easy to read. And this is important for two main reasons. One, today, most organizations use some form of an applicant tracking system, an ATS, as a first-degree filter. Therefore, you want your resume to be readable by this software, so consider basic fonts and layouts. The second audience to consider is the actual human reader. It's important to remember that most people spend less than 10 seconds doing an initial resume read. For hiring managers and HR professionals, you want a resume that someone can quickly peruse and determine if it's worth her time to do a deeper dive meaning you want to judiciously use font sizes, section markings to draw the reader to important content that will make her want to get to know you better. Generally speaking, does the look and feel of resumes differ by industry? So for instance, creative industries versus more formal industries like uh, professional services? 
You know, it's not so much a matter of different standards as it is a matter of the amount of leeway that an industry or function will accept versus another. Areas that attract more creative types and have a more creative work product like graphic design, PR, Uh advertising, those are going to be much more amenable to resumes that stray from that traditional portrait layout with the reverse chronological listing of roles. So for those, including infographics, maybe a splash of color, a more informal font, probably not too big a deal. It actually shows a little bit of your personality. On the flip side, if you're targeting more conservative industries like professional services firms, banking, law, you're best off sticking with the standard resume format. You can really do yourself a disservice going with a non-mainstream resume in those industries. If you do, an employer will start to question whether you'll even fit in. And what I will say is if for some reason you don't know how to structure a resume for an industry or particular role, I recommend the tried and true reverse chronological structure. That's rarely going to hurt you. Okay, that's great. So what are your thoughts on including a statement of objectives and a section listing key skills? Okay, so an objective statement that says something like, I'm looking for X, Y, Z to leverage my skills, that's really passe nowadays. Um, An objective statement like that, it really is just wasting space that could be better utilized to showcase you and your skills. But with that said, I do think that a key skills section is valuable. This is often a section below the professional summary that uses a column structure to list both hard and soft skills that a candidate considers strengths and or pertinent competencies for a position. Going back to those two audiences, an ATS is an algorithm coded to find words and phrases that pertain to the position listing. So a key skills section is a guaranteed method for those words and phrases to be on your resume and be picked up by the ATS. And then remember with the human reader, she's looking at your resume for just a few seconds before making that critical keeper toss decision. So succinctly listing at the top of the resume what she's looking for benefits you. So objective statement, no. Key skills, definitely yes. Okay, great. And also in the course of your response, you raised the point about a summary. Can you briefly explain how the summary would uh, be different from a statement of objectives? Sure. A summary is more so a succinct two or three sentences description of your career to date, and perhaps it mentions um, some critical competencies there. But it's not a statement that it says something like, and this is what I'm looking for. You know, in reality, um, if you're putting together a resume and sending it out, you're looking for a position. No need to restate that. Okay, great. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, So dates or no dates for those that are concerned about ageism? (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, at the end of the day, all recruiters can do basic math. So if you've (laughs) had, (laughs) it's, it's true. So if you've had a variety of positions each of which you held for a couple of years, and then you had a career break for several plus years, 
Someone is going to look at your resume and start ballparking your age, whether dates are on it or not. It's just human nature. I do understand the desire to strike the appropriate balance between showing your experience and not scaring someone off because they think you're too old. So some practice, some practices that I suggest clients employ are the following. You know, one, it is okay to leave dates off of the education area. So feel free to do that. Uh, two, include an early career section. So this is going to be, um, you know, a quick statement of work and achievements from those first few jobs that you held coming out of undergrad. Uh, next, you do want to focus on your most recent experiences. So think about the past 10, maybe 15 years tops. And I know this is tricky if you've been out of the workforce for a while. Um, but you know, think about the fact that content is more important than context. So if it's a choice between including a job and a matching skill from say 17 years ago versus a volunteer experience where you can highlight that same skill from 17 months ago, go with that volunteer experience. Um, also think about trying to make your resume millennial friendly. So you can drop the physical address from the contact info and just use an email address. And speaking of email addresses, if you're using AOL or Hotmail, get a new, um, more up-to-date email address. Google Gmail is always a good route to go. Um, and then also what you can do on your resume to show that you are up to date and with it is list your pertinent social media accounts. And speaking of social media, you do want to use that to your advantage and put your resume out there. The more people that see your resume and know what you're about, the better. So I will just say that I think all of these efforts combined can help you and your resume look a little bit fresher and help overcome that age issue that we're all so worried about. That's great. That's really very helpful. I think it's important to discuss that openly because uh, in conversations with relaunchers, you'll find that that's an issue that's brought up somewhat quietly on the side in a corner, um, but I'm, I'm glad you've addressed that so clearly here for us today. Great. Uh, where should one um, include recent coursework or certifications? Okay, so, you know, typically undergraduate and graduate coursework is included near or at the end of a resume if your degrees were earned more than a year or two ago. And for relaunchers, that's definitely the case. But for recent coursework, especially if it underscores a new career direction or an effort to reinvigorate a, a former skill set, that can go closer to the top of the resume and ahead of the experience section. This placement tells recruiters that these classes are essentially new news and your knowledge is current and up to date. And that's particularly valuable for the return to work demographic. Great, thank you. We recently recorded a podcast with a recruiter who said he often sees resumes that read as job descriptions instead of demonstrating accomplishments. 
Could you discuss the distinction between responsibilities and accomplishments? Sure. Um, if you look at your resume and it describes the tasks you completed, the scope of work that you were doing, and it has the characteristics of prior positions, that's a resume that features your job responsibilities. The issue with a resume that simply describes your responsibilities is that it doesn't give the reader a sense of how you impact an organization and make it better. You really want your resume to broadcast that you've had a pattern of success that will carry over into a future role. Now, many people struggle with crafting those accomplishment-focused bullets. So a good technique for turning those you know, responsibility-type bullets into accomplishments is to add both the how and the so what of your work. So let's say you were in charge of the intern program at your firm. A responsibility-focused bullet is going to say something like, coordinated a 12-week summer program for 15 interns across three departments. Whereas an accomplishment-focused bullet will say something like, coordinated a 12-week summer program for 15 interns across three departments, manage the onboarding process, and establish a midsummer performance review resulting in an 80% offer rate, a 25% increase over the prior summer. Now think about it. Which bullet is going to excite you as a hiring manager? And really, you know, the thing to remember is that it doesn't pay to be modest when you're looking for a job. So make sure that that resume is really singing your praises. Great. That's a really great response. I like the example, too, because it becomes very clear what is just the description. If that's something that you would read in a job posting versus something that only you could have done. That makes that distinction very clear for me. Yes, and Cheryl, you hit it exactly on the head. You want to highlight what is it that happened that only you could have made happen. Great. Um, so we we touched on this earlier, but I'd like to go into it into a little bit more detail. Could you discuss the importance of keywords and reflecting the terminology used in the job posting? I emphasize this because it also raises the importance of networking with insiders in a firm to better understand the firm's lingo and exactly what they're seeking uh, for, a position, for a particular role. Oh, yes. So, you know, hiring firms are always looking for candidates that show that they want to work at their organizations. And candidates can show this in a variety of ways. You know, one critical one is networking, talking with current and former employees about what it's really like to work there and get the inside scoop. Another way to, you know, learn about an organization and then showcase that eventually is doing your company research. So reading annual reports and press releases, all of that investigative work there's an underrated benefit, which is you get to hear how the company talks about itself and the language employees use to describe their work. 
I completely advocate exploiting this learning by taking that language and incorporating, say, phrases that you've heard, titles that you've seen, keywords that you've read, and putting those into your resume. You know, really easily, if they use the term project owner and your resume has project manager, well, update your resume to say project manager. And, you know, why do you want to make these tweaks? It's really because, you know, the managers write these postings in their company-specific language. So if you're using the language that they use, I know I sound like a broken record, but that ATS will actually be able to find the matches between your resume and the posting. And therefore, you're more likely to make it through that first round pass. Also, by using this language, um, you're making it easier for that human reader to both process and understand your resume. And then I guess just to respond to your question a little bit more directly, you know, I do often recommend that clients create a word cloud out of a posting to find those keywords and then pepper that language throughout their resume and their other professional documents. The reality is that companies start to picture you fitting in when you can speak their language. That's a great idea. And how would you find... Um, how would you develop a word cloud? Is there a, a uh, website or something online that would help you do that? Is it part of a program? Oh, sure. If you just, you know, Google word cloud or I think Wordle, W-O-R-D-L-E, that's a popular website that will do that for you. And what a word cloud is, is that, you know, basically it'll take some text that you provided, that you input and the outcome of the word cloud is basically a bunch of words in a jumble, but those words that um, the website reads as being most important will come across bigger and in the center of that cloud. And so those words that are the biggest and most centered are the ones that you wanna make sure that you use in your networking, you use in interviews, and of course you're putting on your resume too. That sounds great. Thank you. So now let's dig into the nitty gritty of this. Um, the most frequent question when it comes to relauncher's resume is, how does one actually address the career break in the resume? This is a potentially fraught issue for relaunchers, and I presume there will, be, there will not be a one-size-fits-all response. But a gap in employment can be disqualifying for some employers, full stop. What are your thoughts about addressing the gap? Sure. So, um, you know, what I will say is we all make choices in life. And I feel strongly that a relauncher should not have to apologize for taking a career break. With that said, I do think that rules and policies are made to be broken. Honestly, with this type of organization, a resume with a career break, whether it's highlighted or not, is probably not going to get that far on its own in that type of organization. This is really a time when you need to network your way in. So look for an advocate that will say to a hiring manager, you know, look, on paper, I know she's not what you're looking for, but I've gotten to know her 
And here are all the reasons why you should talk to her anyway. I know this podcast uh, episode isn't about networking, so I don't want to dwell too much on the topic. But in this scenario, I really think networking is probably your best option. Exactly. And this is specifically addressing those firms for whom a gap will be disqualifying. Yes, exactly. And like I said, you know, a lot of firms, um, you know, they put criteria out there. But when it comes down to a face-to-face discussion, there can be some wiggle room around that. So if you're applying to those firms via resume only, unfortunately, your chances of getting in aren't that high. And that's why you need an advocate on the inside and you need to do some networking to make that happen. Okay, great. Uh, Many return to work programs actually require a a career break as a key eligibility criterion. That can be a challenge for relaunchers who took a break but still worked on a mixture of pro bono and small projects on a part-time basis. They'll want to show the career break but also give themselves credit for keeping one foot in the marketplace. What advice would you give someone in that conundrum? Okay. So, you know, what I will say is that returnships are a great way to re-enter the workforce. You know, when a company establishes a returnship program, they are committed to the relaunching population, which is good news for all of us. As a relauncher myself, that means a lot to me. You know, but one thing to note is that these programs, because of uh, all the press and everything that they get, they get a huge number of applications for, you know, just a few slots. And so the acceptance rates are pretty low. You know, the statistics I see are that they're often less than 1%. You know, furthermore, they may not be the best return to work option for many of us, you know, um, perhaps due to geography constraints, travel requirements, et cetera. So I do want to remind listeners that there are still many, many, many opportunities to return to work outside of these programs. Now, if you are attracted to an organization that offers a returnship, but you don't meet the eligibility criteria, the good news is that these firms have already highlighted that they are open to non-traditional candidates. So I recommend that candidates look for direct hire opportunities with this firms, with these firms. Coming in as a direct hire, all of that freelance pro bono consulting work that you've done during your break is going to speak volumes and work in your favor when it comes to uh, the networking and interview process. That's great. And what I hear from your responses to both of those issues is where there's a will, there's a way. I think as relaunchers, we know that there will be obstacles, but the onus really lies on the individual as to how they're going to deal with those obstacles. You can allow them to stop you or you can look for a way around them and ways to navigate. It may mean you look at other employers, but you're reading the writing on the wall, as you say, with firms that have relaunch programs. They're already indicating that they're interested, so apply anyway for full-time permanent roles. That's a great response. Thank you. Great. 
In our recruiter series, our guests recommend highlighting substantive skills regardless of whether they were obtained through paid work, internships, or volunteer opportunities. Uh, should an applicant separate paid internships and unpaid work on the resume? First off, I just want to say I definitely agree with your earlier podcast guests. What's important is that you have the skills. What's of less interest to employers is the context in which they were developed. So with that said, I admit I'm not too dogmatic with my clients about how they title the sections in their resumes. So I'm okay if someone wants to group it all together and call it experience. I will say, you know, I've worked with a number of clients that started careers in corporate America, uh, you know, took a career break, and now they're looking to do something different, something that speaks to their heart a little bit more so, and they're looking for nonprofit work. In those cases, my clients want to show that, you know, they're familiar with the idiosyncrasies of, um, you know, working in a mission-minded organization. So for those scenarios, clients are purposefully calling out sections like volunteer experience, nonprofit board experience. So, you know, what I suggest is thinking about where you're sending your resume and how what you've done aligns with the position and what the organization is all about and adjust accordingly. And, you know, as I just said, what's most important is a candidate showing that she's got those skills. And um, it's not such a concern um, where those skills and experiences reside and in what section they are on the resume. That's great. And that goes back to um, the conversation about the gap where some firms advise relaunchers not to indicate that they've had, say, for instance, an independent consulting firm during their break unless it was official, uh, unless it was an official business where they're actually able to outline um, the work and the skills that were developed during that during that uh, consulting period. Yeah. And, you know, and what I want to say in response to that is that first and foremost, your resume needs to be accurate, you know, and additionally, you should recognize that anything on your resume is fair game in an interview. So if my resume says I am the founder and CEO of Kendall Brown Consulting, I need to be able to talk in detail about the type of consulting projects I completed, how I marketed myself, the clients I served, the number of engagements I managed, etc. If I'm not able to do that, I'm going to come across as incompetent at best and as dishonest and untrustworthy at worst. None of those is going to lead to a job offer. I have to admit, I'm a big fan of addressing any red flags head on. The reason being that when a candidate broaches a potentially concerning topic, let's say a career break, she gets to shape the story, meaning she can frame it in such a way that the resume reader becomes less concerned about the issue and more interested in her as a candidate. So suffice it to say, I actually advocate for including a career break statement on your resume. And, um, you know, with that said, 
I'm going to anticipate your follow-up, which is going to be, well, Kendall, what does that actually look like? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's an example of, um, you know, a career break statement. It can read something like, voluntarily left the workforce to care for an elderly parent. Professional hiatus punctuated by several volunteer roles in which I made notable and salient contributions to small businesses and nonprofit organizations. Eager and committed to return to the workforce in a full-time capacity. And that's it. It can be as brief as that, as succinct as that. And the thing to note is that this statement directly addresses the two biggest concerns with relaunchers, which are, why did she take the break? And how committed is she to returning to workforce, to the workforce? So you've addressed that, and it hasn't taken up a lot of space on your resume, but you've still got a lot of time to talk about other, all the other good stuff on your resume that you want a reader to know about you. Okay, great. So let's look at this idea of the format of the uh, resume. Is a chronological resume pre preferable to a functional resume, or is there some hybrid that would be a middle ground? Sure. Um, you know, as I keep saying, an ATS, that actually is going to scan the entirety of your resume when it quote unquote reads it. So in reality, format is of little concern to a software program. So the format decision is really for that HR professional or that hiring manager. A front-loaded resume will briefly highlight key candidate details directly below the contact info. So sections like we already mentioned, a professional summary or a key skills section and a career highlights section, those are going to catch a reader's attention because you know, we're hitting them with that most relevant and significant info as soon as we can. And the takeaway is that HR manager or, you know, hiring manager, whoever it is, you know, is either going to want to continue reading right then and there, which would be great, or at a minimum, they're going to put that resume, that front-loaded document in that refer to later pile. So, you know, nowadays, resumes that have that, that's what we're calling a hybrid resume. And, you know, it achieves that goal of capturing the attention of a reader, you know, in that under 10 seconds that you've got to do so. So I actually am all for that hybrid format for any situation. And, you know, actually what I will say in today's market, the hybrid resume is so commonplace that it's actually considered the standard. If you don't at least have a professional summary at the top of your resume, you're going to date yourself. So when I say the typical stand, the typical format, the traditional resume, the standard format, I'm actually referring to that hybrid format. Now, okay, one thing right. I do want to say is a lot of people will ask me about a functional format. And, um, you know, I'm going to be honest and say I'm not such a fan. When someone sees a functionally formatted resume, the first thing they ask is, what is that candidate trying to hide? And as they're spending that 10 seconds reading the resume, as opposed to being focused on the content, they're going to be trying to suss out what's the issue here. 
and you just don't have time for that. So therefore, um, you know, go with that standard, aka hybrid format. Okay, great. So then how would that work with online uh, profiles on a firm's career website with a strict title firm date format? Okay. Yeah. And you know what? Another um, piece of advice I give my clients is to, once you've got in your resume completed and all, and you feel really good about it, uh, create a backup version that is that one page old school traditional format so you can use it in situations like that. Um, and typically that's going to be a one page document. And I do just want to call out. Um, when it comes to page length of a resume, because that's a very common question that I get, a good rule of thumb is a one-page resume, if you've got 10 years or less experience, two pages for any length of experience over 10 years. And lastly, I, you know, a personal um, uh, issue of mine is that if you move to a two-page resume, I really believe you should fill the entirety of the two pages. Okay, great. What are your thoughts on video resumes? Too gimmicky? <laughs> um, you know, a video resume is basically a 90-second to two-minute one-sided conversation in which an applicant is answering those common interview questions. What's nice about those is that you get to prep before the video shoot. So, you know, no nerves. You just come across as a supremely confident candidate. Um, you know, those that favor video resumes say that an employer can get a more in-depth understanding of a potential employee. Now, the downside of video resumes are that, one, you may be answering questions that the employer really isn't interested in. And then, two, they actually are just a bit more inconvenient for a recruiter to you know, to, to deal with. They've got a stack of papers and then they have to go from that stack to, um, you know, the computer and find the resume and all that. So it is a bit more inconvenient. But the biggest con, and I think this is a pretty significant one um, with video resumes, is that companies fear claims of bias in their hiring practices. So consequently, most won't even accept a video resume. So before you take the time to script, record, and edit a video, do some research and try to figure out, is it even going to be watched? And I actually believe you get a better bang for your buck by beefing up your online presence. So take full advantage of LinkedIn, use the summary section, get those endorsements, get those recommendations, write a professionally oriented blog, join an industry related forum. So, you know, I will say, as I mentioned today, I'm not a proponent of video resumes, but I do understand that employers are the market makers in this arena. So I'm actually going to be keeping my eye on this issue to see how things play out in the future. Who knows? My, my response, you know, two, three, seven years down the line could change. Yeah. And it could also be that they're more prevalent in some industries than others. The idea of it personally makes me cringe, but I've seen it done in other industries. So it could just be 
that it depends on the role that you're applying for. Yes, I totally agree. Um, you know, when we're talking just generalities, I think yeah. it's better to stay away from them, but you never know. And that's where doing some research and some networking can play in your favor if you learn that this company, this HR person, for whatever reason, they really like them. So you know, now you know that and can consider making one. Great. Would you recommend linking to work product in a resume or should one leave that to LinkedIn? You know, um, as with videos, the hassle of finding a resume, reviewing it, and then following a link may be more time and effort than someone really wants to devote. All the HR people that I talk with say that they go to LinkedIn for 100% of the candidates that they consider. So couple that with the fact that LinkedIn readily lends itself to pointing recruiters to pointing recruiters to material, you know, outside of those typical professional documents. I say go ahead, definitely put it on LinkedIn. You know, um, I mentioned earlier that if you are having issues filling a resume, um, and I do believe you should get to the entirety of a page, if you've got space, then go ahead and link it here too. But don't put links to this type of info on your resume at the expense of something else that could be included there. Okay, great. Uh, should the content of the resume mirror a LinkedIn profile or vice versa? So just using LinkedIn as a public version of your resume? Hmm. You know, I will say this is like the number two question that I get when it comes to resumes. And um, what I will say is that a resume is beholden to the past. It reflects what you've done. And the beauty of LinkedIn is that it doesn't have that constraint. Therefore, your LinkedIn profile can be forward-looking in a way a resume can't. Now, all job seekers should have a LinkedIn profile. However, it is particularly valuable for those candidates that are looking to do something that may not seem like a typical next step. So I encourage my clients to use the summary section of LinkedIn to answer those questions that a resume cannot. Meaning, let's say you have a finance background, but now you want to pivot into marketing. That summary section is a place to explain that despite your primary focus always being on the numbers, you always looked at your work through the lens of how your recommendations would impact the end consumer. Now, even if you are looking to do something similar, LinkedIn allows you the opportunity to portray your depth of experience in a way that the limited real estate of a resume just, you know, doesn't have time to allow. So I'm very much on board with using LinkedIn to its, full, to its fullest degree and having it complement your resume versus reiterate it. Great. That's that's a really great point. Um, should one include a cover letter? I keep hearing both ways nowadays. There's many who say no as say yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I feel that you should go ahead and include it. If you're applying for a job and the posting says that a cover letter is optional, by all means, include a cover letter. And here's why. About half of the HR professionals I know say they read cover letters. The other half don't. 
The thing is, when you apply for a position, you don't know which half is on the receiving end of your application materials. So at worst, someone throws away the cover letter without having read it. At best, someone reads your cover letter, learns more about you, and decides, hey, you're potentially a great fit for the role. And, you know, the other thing about cover letters are that they're like LinkedIn profiles in that they allow you a latitude that the resume doesn't. And the great thing about a cover letter is that it's highly, highly, highly customizable. The cover letter is where you can write about an experience that may not be significant enough to include on your resume, and it may be too specific a detail to include on a public forum like LinkedIn. So I consider a cover letter another opportunity to sell yourself. And um, as as a job seeker, you should take every chance to do just that. Great. That's wonderful. Um, So the final question is one that we ask all of our podcast guests. What is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we already talked about today? Um, You know, I will say the number one question I get is, should I create a resume for each position for which I apply? And the answer is yes. Now, before everybody, you know, gets scared and stressed out, you know, this is a process that shouldn't take too long. At the end of the day, the skills you've developed and the experiences you've had, they don't change simply because you're applying for a different position. So once you've got a well-written resume in place, you should expect to update at most about 20% of it for each new job posting. So, yes, go ahead and create a new resume for every position for which you apply. Recognize it shouldn't take that long to do so. Great. Thank you, Kendall Brown, for joining us today. How can people find out more about the coaching services your firm offers? Oh, people can go to my my website. That's Ascension Careers. So ascension-careers.com and find me there. Great. Thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Cheryl McGee Wallace, your host. For more information on iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And also be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.